Hello and welcome to another episode of Subspace Radio. It is me, Rob, and Kevin is joining me as well. Hello. It is another time for Star Trek to be talked about, and we are here to talk about the latest episode of Lower Decks and Pathological Fallacies. Well That's done, right. Rob. Well done. I'm Thank glad you, you had to say that one and not me. <laughs> so, yes, we are back and we have a, a particularly focused episode with um, uh, a species we haven't seen for some time and uh, and also a bit of a focus on a species we've known since the very beginning. What were your thoughts on this episode, Kevin? Um, wow, there was a lot of swearing in this Star Trek, wasn't there? Lots of swearing. <laughs> lots and lots and lots of swearing. This was a, a big bleeping episode. Yeah, I mean, I hate to start there, but it, it definitely took me out of it. And especially before the reveal that our characters were under the influence, like they ramped it up and the swearing was the first sign that something was off. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that was a lot of beeps for one episode of Star Trek. And that was one scene. And I was wondering what is going on here? So I'm kind of glad that there was something unusual going on. But uh, it seemed like, uh, yeah, making making every officer on the ship super sweary was the shorthand for their emotions are out of control. Yes, very, very much so. Setting that aside, I thought it was an enjoyable episode. The idea of a Betazoid secret service or, or, or uh, what would you call them? <laughs> Spy network? Yeah. Um, I, I enjoy that idea. I loved uh, getting a Talyn-focused episode, and we have been saying how naturally she slots into other characters' stories up until this point, and now to see her like take a step to the fore, even though she was kind of hiding in the background, like it was sort of the reveal of the episode that it was about Talyn all along. Yeah. Uh, but really good. We got to see her give someone a neck pinch. Uh, we got to see her uh, kind of wrestle <laughs> with her barely controlled emotions. Um, really enjoyable. Lots of references as usual. And um, yeah, uh, I liked it. Yeah, it was uh, pretty good. It was good to focus on the, as always, there seems to be that passive aggressive nature of uh, Vulcan culture to just completely shut people out as opposed to talking about it openly and honestly. Mm. It's just that whole gradually fading out. And so that leaves uh, Talyn in the position of trying to come to terms with this state. And of course, Mariner was there to support her through this trying time, but it wouldn't be a Star Trek episode if we didn't have that connected and inflamed in some way to a um, ridiculous level. The crew entirely goes off the rails. Um, I particularly loved having the Betazoids back and what a stellar cast of Betazoids we had. We had Janelle James from uh, Abbott Elementary. We had the brilliant um, uh, Rachel Dratch. Uh, and we had, of course, Wendy Malick as well. And they were all in fine, fine form. Yeah, all three characters were interesting in their own ways and, and having all three of them was such a gift. Lots of flirting, but you know, if, if Ransom flirts back, she's not interested and lots of <laughs> uh, flirting with each other. <laughs> <laughs> I can be detached and unavailable. A highlight of this episode for me was the very first shot. And it was masterful visual storytelling. It is a close-up on Talyn walking down the corridor with a crewman sort of over her shoulder down the, the corridor out of focus, making like moony love eyes at her. 
And the composition of the shot leads you to believe that the object of his affection is Talin. But just in the foreground, in front of Talin, kind of bobbing in the corner of the frame, is the bottom of one of those giant uh, glasses of alcohol that the Betazoids are carrying. And just that <laughs> one shot of like, what is going on here? There is a log entry going on in the foreground. So as an audience, you're just invited to consider that frame of Talin, someone apparently following her uh, with love eyes and uh, a, a mysterious vessel uh, floating in the foreground. And everything that happened in the, this episode was like promised in that one frame. Exactly. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great to see, as always, Lower Decks is pulling it out again of a species that we have not seen for some time being brought back and being the, uh, celebrated. So we haven't even heard really of the Betazoids since uh, they were invaded and taken over during the Dominion War. That's right. So finding out that they actually do have a secret service and they're not just all about nude weddings and getting emotional feelings off people, they uh, can kick butt as well with lipstick slash um, fighting <laughs> weapons. The, the lipstick batons was a bit much for me, but it was a good visual <laughs> shorthand, I thought. It does remind me a bit from a Doctor Who spinoff. Uh, it wouldn't be a, a subspace radio episode if I didn't pull in other franchises. Um, one of the most famous companions of the Doctor was uh, Sarah Jane Smith, and she got her own spinoff series uh, back in the mid-noughties called The Sarah Jane Adventures, and she had, instead of a sonic screwdriver, which is the Doctor's uh, uh, magic wand of choice, um, she had a sonic lipstick. So oh, it was very much in. Did. Yeah. Get it? Big get sigh. it? You get it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There was a B-plot uh, hidden in this episode with, uh, well, Rutherford putting Boimler forward for the security program with uh, beat poetry and other forms of therapy to, to kind of calm the mind and, and make you a more effective security officer. What do you think of that stuff? And Boimler getting pretty annoyed by the fact that he wanted to do like security stuff. And he, they, like, he was Not getting security quite annoyed. Stuff, but... but also like Star Trek trivia stuff, like Boimler <laughs> being annoyed by a guessing game where the answer is Constable Odo from Deep Space Nine. I mean, yes, he was the first person to the answer. That's the Boimler we know and love. But the fact that he was annoyed did not really track with me. It's interesting what colors Lieutenant JG is bringing out of uh, Boim's here. Yes, and I did. Um, I did appreciate the fact of security's role on the ship is security in more than just the you know the physical labor yes. of you know grabbing your phasers and being there um, to be a physical threat or physical security. security you are there. Security's opposite is insecurity. It seems <laughs> exactly, exactly. So having that uh, emotional, psychological security with on the ship is a part of that as well, which hasn't really been, uh, explored, which I thought was a very cute idea. So yeah, it was a, uh, a fun episode to go through, but there yeah. was a lot of tropes in there that connected us to our wider topic to explore, uh, this week. Yes. The, the crew of a starship seemingly going off the rails and behaving erratically. We had quite a lot of it. And Looking at all the other times in Star Trek where crews have gone off the rails or behaved out of character, something that for me stood out for this episode before we leave it is how far behind the audience was. I feel like so often when this happens, the audience is led into the cause of this early. 
Mm. It's an alien that we get to see before any of the crew are aware of them, or it's a parasite that we learn of in the cold open, but our characters don't discover until the climax of the episode. In this one, we were given a very persuasive red herring with the presence of not one, but three Betazoids aboard the ship. And so we, as the audience, were 100% convinced. I don't know about you, Rob, but speaking for myself, and I think the intent of the episode we were 100% convinced that those Betazoids were the cause of this until, uh, you know, the ultimate reveal right near the end that it's just Talin's powerful self-doubt that is projecting all over the ship. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it was it was well done in the way that the clues were left behind that it was Talin to begin with. It wasn't just a case of it was the red herring throne. There was those little breadcrumbs left behind, but it was a... It was a well-laid-out uh, mystery to be revealed. Yeah. Um, but again, it was that case of this is far too prominent, far too uh, early. Um, but it was good for us to be let in uh, with our eyes closed as opposed to yeah. getting that little hint before. I appreciate a good bait-and-switch now and then. It, it, <laughs> it worked on me. Exactly. Yeah, me too. But uh, yeah, so we, we picked a couple of episodes from the past where crews were not themselves um, shall we go chronologically as usual, Rob? As always, as always. Let's go back to the original series. You got one for us? I do have one for us from the original As series. do I. Oh, it's going to be original an original series. series twofer here. It is. Mm. Well, I couldn't really find any in my go-to uh, stories. It was actually quite a tricky one to find a definition of. So I, I knew there was, there was two that stood out for me that one I'd already seen and it kind of always... Uh, shat me to tears so I didn't want to go back and watch that again but there's always one that I've always seen moments of but I've never watched the full episode so it's a classic episode might it involve Sulu sweaty and shirtless of course it is this is my time to catch up on classic episodes mm-hmm. iconic episodes and so I did I watched The Naked Time yeah good this is not my pick so uh, I'll let you lead us off Excellent. Well, this is the uh, fourth episode of the first season of uh, the original series of Those Old Scientists. And we have Spock and another crewman transporting down to a uh, colony that needs to be evacuated because the planet that they are on is frozen over and is about to explode. So they need to take off the surviving colonists and uh, then watch the explosion to make, you know, build all the scientific data around it. However, all the crew there are dead, killed in quite, you know, graphic and horrifying ways some great set dressing work with the frozen interiors and the 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 frozen body in the shower yes frozen body in the shower and the colonists on the on the ground covered in snow and and uh, collapsed on the table and despite the fact that the token red shirt and uh, spock are there in full spacesuit outfits they can easily just just slip their hands yeah, yeah. underneath well, everything uh, seems to be helmets. in order here. I'm going to scratch my nose and take off my helmet, you know. Just slip it underneath. Just slip it underneath the helmet. <laughs> uh, take their gloves off. Um, it's quite a beautiful, eerie shot of the uh, crewman's hand being placed down and the blood from the from that was submitted moving its way, giving this intention of being drawn to, uh, to, to the life that is there. And this begins a, a chain reaction of the blood infecting uh, the crew, passed on by sweat and touch and contact. And everyone is as drawn by their darker and more impulsive impulses. McCoy describes it later on as if they've, they've been infected by alcohol. Yeah, they're all drunk. 
We see Chapel and Spock have a really interesting running where Chapel's affected and she affects Spock. And there's this unspoken but spoken mm. tension there. It's very interesting watching it through uh, Strange New World mm. eyes now. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have the iconic uh, Sulu earlier talking about how fencing is the great way to go. Fencing, oh, it's the <laughs> only way to keep up your health and keep your, your mind fresh and keep focused. And uh, George Takei is very good here. He is, it's, it's not a cringeworthy performance of going, No, he's oh, playing full commitment and uh, yeah, it works. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not camp at all. There's a, there's a great intensity to it, which I really, really enjoy. But yeah, Nimoy does an emotionally battled Spock. And so early in the series, like this is episode four. And to think yeah. three hours of television earlier, Spock was in the pilot, the cage, grinning like a fool. And uh, <laughs> just so quickly, the character has developed to this point where the idea that his stony personality might be cracking is the moment of pure horror in, in this episode. Like, yes. It is the scariest moment when you see Spock starting to lose control. That is the, the, the strongest character beat in this episode. And that they found that so early is amazing. Oh, and there are moments when you can see he's like clearly annoyed, like the crew are falling apart, falling asleep, you know, being distracted. And you see, literally see Spock there frustrated and annoyed and sending people off the deck, you know, almost a fit of peak. Um, it's fascinating to see. And the great, great moment where, you know, 1960s uh, emotional logic of going, well, how can I uh, snap Spock out of this? Kirk goes, I'll slap him. Well, that didn't work. I'll slap him again. And then again and again, <laughs> and again and again and again and again. I'm like, okay, stop, stop. He's already dead, Kirk. <laughs> and then it slips into this other uh, alternative plot of, uh, alternative ending where they slip back in time they get in a time warp they go back oh, yeah. seven days this is the weird one where they're like oh it, it lucky us it never happened <laughs> let's go let's fly yeah. in a different direction yeah the <laughs> clock runs backwards and it's like yes yeah very early on just randomly let's introduce the idea of a time warp by accident and of course it has the memorable line of scotty doing a bit of a bones and turning to kirk and going I cannot change the laws of physics. Oh, yes. It's so good. I need half an hour. They had their um, catchphrases. Excellent. They had their character hooks sorted out so early in this series. It's so good. Yeah. So many other Star Trek series don't find their groove until season two or even deep into season two. And Star Trek was on it so quickly. Very much so. And especially after watching The Naked Now. And that's been sort of like a fuel for me to, you know, talk about chicks in Star Trek. And just how awkward uh, the naked now is. That moment between Gates McFadden and Patrick Stewart is still stuck in my head. That yeah. laugh that Patrick Stewart does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What the hell is that? Yeah. Um, but to watch this, I'm there going, no, nah, there's the build, the ratcheting up of tension is is quite lovely in this. And um, the emotional turmoil that our characters that we love are very good in here. The duality of those two episodes, I think, is interesting as well. Like the Naked Time, the TOS episode, I think is strong. It is an early highlight of the series. And it serves that function that we've talked about before, that by m making the characters be 
under the influence and therefore revealing things about themselves that they would not normally. It is mm. a shortcut to help us get to know these characters and let us into their internal lives. And so it is such a useful episode in the function it plays in the series early on. Yeah, little beautiful uh, moments of, you know, uh, Spock talking about his family, about Kirk talking about where he'd rather be, all this type of stuff. You get little hints about the, yeah. the characters so and early on. The fact that they brought out the exact same trick to the extent that they referenced the episode explicitly in The Naked Now, which is episode three of Star Trek The Next Generation, they literally sit down at the library computer and go, oh, this happened to the original Enterprise and Dr. McCoy found a cure. This is it. Let's try it again and see if it works. They are that explicitly referencing this previous episode. But something about the TNG version of it works so much less well. And in part, I feel like the writers and the actors didn't have their characters as locked in. And so there wasn't mm -hmm. a strong sense of, is this out of character for me? Or is this yeah. who I am all the time? And I don't know if they were taking bigger swings, but the Spock Chapel scene and the Picard Crusher scene are like, you put them next to each other and you're like, one of them really works and is maybe the best scene in oh. the episode. The other one, you're going, what is going on there? They're going for something and they're not getting it. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish I could put my finger on it. Some good things do come out of the naked now, like the Data-Tasha-Yar relationship, which echoes all the way into Picard. Where they were intimate. They were intimate. So there is stuff that is carried forward, but this episode of TNG does not form the foundation for characters through the series in the same way that it did for Spock, for example, in the original yeah. series. That scene in particular was a highlight for me between Chapel and Spock. I think I've already mentioned that. Just like so much is being said, but so much is not being said. And it's all about yearning and repression and all that type of stuff and Spock trying to come to terms and handle everything and what he doesn't say is so powerful while Chapel is just repeating it like a mantra. I love you. I love you. And you're there going, it's re it's hypnotizing. It's hypnotizing how well it's done where it's a little embarrassing in the naked now. Yeah. It reminds me a little of, for example, um, Star Trek into darkness, the movie that, okay, we're in a parallel universe now. What are we going to do with what we know of Star Trek history? The next generation must have been asking itself the same question in the early days. How are we going to use the history of Star Trek in this new show? Are we going to avoid yeah. it and be our own thing? Are we going to embrace it and literally bring back plots uh, the way they do in The Naked Now? Or are we just going to have sprinkles and cameos of uh, McCoy and the pilot and late, much later on Montgomery Scott coming out of a transporter beam? And The Naked Now, as well as Star Trek Into Darkness, which retreads much of the plot of The Wrath of Khan, just in a, in a flipped alternate universe version, feels like the version where they're like, well, let's literally take a plot from before and replay it in an interesting way. I think what we learn through these episodes and that film that is generally considered the weakest of the new Star Trek films, I think what we learn is that Wholesale reusing a plot will only remind you how good the original was and make the new one seem weak by comparison. 
Exactly, exactly. And I mean, as as being shown with Lower Decks in their Tuvix uh, sequel, yeah. of just how to take that idea and then push it beyond to the ridiculous, not just trace the same ground. Yes. Yeah, so what was uh, what was your uh, episode of The Crew Gone Crazy? I'm going to take us to season three of the original series with Day of the Dove, season three, episode 11 of TOS. And this is one of those uh, relatively short list of good season three episodes, if you ask me. Hey, lovely. Um, Day of the Dove is Star Trek's message of anti-war at the height of the Vietnam War. This was aired in 1968. Uh, Are you saying that Star Trek was being political oh, back it in sure the 60s? Was. I've, I've read <laughs> in the excellent, if you've got time for a big read, These Are the Voyages, Holy. season three by Mark Cushman, where he, he pulls all of the memos and correspondence between writers and studio execs about every single episode of the original series. And they went into this one. The writer and the producer were saying, we should try to air this episode as close to the election as possible because the statement we are making about the war, we want to affect the polls if we can. That is how deliberate a anti-war message is baked into this episode. That's amazing. And also for listeners, um, Kevin was just showing up the book, which is obnoxiously thick. Yeah, it's two inches thick and it covers just one season of the original series. That's incredible. That's incredible. Great. So yeah, tell us, uh, tell us more about this, uh, political statement in an era which apparently had no political statements about (laughs) these people even know science fiction science fiction is laced in political comments and all that type of stuff that's what makes sci-fi so great you do it in a way that people just think it's entertainment that's right anyway i shall get off my soapbox in day of the dove a swirling blob of light is the antagonist and it never speaks a line it is just a floating alien presence but what we learn in the episode is is it subsists on violent thoughts and so it sets out to pit against each other in a state of permanent war the crew of the enterprise and the crew of a klingon vessel nice the episode opens with the enterprise thinking it is flying to the rescue of a Federation calling under attack, and it finds nothing on this desolate planet. And then a Klingon ship flies in and explodes, and the Klingons beam down to the planet at the last minute and immediately blame Kirk and crew for the destruction of their ship. And this, these are two delusions that are placed in the minds of these crews by this blob of an alien that arranges for them to all beam up to the Enterprise and then it walls off parts of the ship so that there are an exactly equal number of combatants on each side. And it plants in their minds this racial hatred for each other that locks themselves into a cycle of violence. The alien is able to convert the walls of the Enterprise so they are impenetrable by phasers so that they can't get through the barriers. It converts all of the uh, energy weapons on the ship into swords and other primitive weapons so that they cannot vaporize each other, only slice and dice each other. And the alien is able to rapidly heal any injured crew member to get them back into the fight right away. But the reason I picked this episode against our theme of crews acting out of character is the beautiful character work that we get to see as one by one, the characters we know so well three seasons in now, start to act out of character in how driven by hate they are. 
Chekhov is the first one to show the signs when they're still down on the planet and he calls them Cossacks to, to their faces and <laughs> he gets knocked down. And from then on, Chekhov is on a mission of retribution. When they get back on the ship, he starts, he starts shouting about the fact that they killed his brother Piotr in an unprovoked attack on a Federation uh, science station. And I'm like, ooh, a relative. That's something we could use in Strange New Worlds. Are we going to get to see Chekhov's brother, Piotr, in Strange New Worlds? What I didn't remember is this is completely a delusion that the alien is placing ah. in his head. Uh, Chekhov is an only child and has no brother, but he is convinced that he has to he has a brother. his lost brother. And McCoy, uh, McCoy is the next one to show the signs. He starts saying things like, you know what a Klingon is. We don't need to ask them why they behave this way. You know what they are. Um, and uh, yeah, one by one, Kirk sees his bridge crew kind of turn to hatred and violence, and he is puzzled by it each time, and each one adds to the mountain of evidence that there is something weird going on on this ship. Ultimately, he has to convince Mara, which is the Klingon captain Kang's wife. They manage to take Mara hostage, and he he and Spock managed to convince her that this is all an alien's doing and that they are pawns in its sick game. And then Kirk and Mara go and convince Kang. Kang is played by an amazing guest star. For me, this is the best Klingon in the original series. He is the most like modern Klingons that we now see in Star Trek, the noble warrior driven by honor. Uh, and willing to listen to reason if there is a sense that the the battle they are doing is not an honorable one. Like that ingredient is here for the very first time in uh, the Klingon culture. Uh, and as a result, Kirk is able to, to make Kang see reason. And the two captains in the final scene of this episode, they turn to the floating ball of light and they tell it to ship out and they they laugh at it. And uh, Kang slaps Kirk on the back and Kirk nearly falls over from the impact. They, they point and laugh at it in order to like give it the opposite of what it thrives on. And the, the ball uh, makes its escape by floating through the wall, out the hull and into space. And that's how the episode ends. Kang is, of course, played by the brilliant Michael Anzara, yeah. who came back for uh, D Space Nine to play the same character that's right. uh, with uh, Jadzia. And that's one of the, that's pretty much the episode that really nails Jadzia's character. Amazing character and amazing character actor. He was in all sorts of, like, my reading suggests he was quite a get as a guest star, but he was mostly yes. a guest star in shows at this time. So he's one of those character actors that you bring on to bring gravitas to a very special episode of a show. American Syrian actor. And I remember him growing up as uh, the voice of Mr. Freeze in the animated series of Batman. Oh, yeah. Uh, in pretty much the the episode that defined the new series of the animated series of Batman, uh, Heart of Ice, which rewrote the character of Mr. Freeze to be a tragic character seeking revenge for his dead wife. And it's an incredibly powerful episode and Michael Zara's voice is outstanding. And yeah, when when, I, when you mentioned Kang, they're going, it sounds familiar. And I went, of course, Michael Zara, one of the, the greatest Klingon actors ever to live. Yeah, I believe it. Great character voice as well as just great presence on screen too. 
Um, there are certain things about this episode that do not age well. The number of fair-skinned actors wearing brown face makeup in this episode is very conspicuous, mm-hmm. particularly Mara, the, the wife uh, of Kang. Is, <laughs> they, they laid it on pretty thick. She, uh, she looks like a block of chocolate walking around in this episode. And yeah, they do that much better in the uh, modern series where they blend different actors yes. in the makeup. Martok, of course, being a white actor. And there's one very uncomfortable scene in which Chekhov, in his haze of alien-induced hatred, comes across Mara in the corridor, and he holds a sword to her neck and threatens her life. And then you see his expression change, and he goes, but you are very beautiful, and then uh, forces a kiss on her before Kirk and Spock come around the corner and knock him out. And Kirk does, just as you described before, the hit him and hit him again, whap, whap across the face (laughs) until Spock restrains him and says, Captain, he's not responsible for his actions. Uh, And uh, Pavel kind of slumps against the wall. Uh, At the end of the scene, Kirk literally lifts Pavel up and holds him in his arms unconscious. And he says, Chekhov, Chekhov, is this what's in for all of us? An endless cycle of violence as he walks off the screen with with his uh, his crewman cradled in his arms. It's good stuff, but that scene is very hard to watch, and I don't feel like it would have been put on screen in that form nowadays. Yeah, even with the just justification I do in inverted commas of him being under the influence of this uh, yeah. alien force. Mm. Yeah, but um, yeah, really good. If you haven't seen it, worth a watch, especially for like the early cultural creation of the Klingons here. I think it is one of the few original series episodes where the Klingons are not two-dimensional villains. They have three dimensions. Yeah. And just to watch uh, Michael Anzara in his uh, peak as Kang. Yeah. The anti-war message in the writing is at times explicit. There's There's a log entry. Once Kirk figures out what's going on, he does a captain's log between scenes where he says, Captain's log, Stardate Armageddon. We must find <laughs> a way to defeat the alien force of hate that has taken over the Enterprise. Stop the war now or spend eternity in futile, bloody violence. Stop the Gee, war now well, was like written on protest signs that were being held yeah. outside the Capitol buildings in the lead up to the election. Um, That's at incredible. These, uh, at these times. So Star Trek was wearing its uh, politics on its sleeve. Whenever people do the whole thing of all oh, Star Trek was never political, they always show the photo of uh, Frank Gorshin in makeup with the silver half one side and black half the other side. Yeah, yeah. But th- this one is definitely... Yeah, as you've just said, it was the backstory as well is it you know, it was written specifically for a reason to get a message out there. Yeah, and, and, and the hatred between the Klingons and the Federation is the headline for sure. But the peak of this episode for me is actually a scene on the bridge where the bridge crew start to turn against each other. And uh, uh, just like you were talking about with Spock uh, kind of losing his cool with Chapel in the, the naked time... I've got some quotes here in front of me. Spock tries to restrain Scotty, who's a little upset. And Scotty says, keep your Vulcan hands off me. Just keep away. Your feelings might be hurt, you green-blooded half-breed. And Mr. Spock says, may I say that I have not thoroughly enjoyed serving with humans. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. And Scotty says, then transfer out, freak. 
and they 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 go at each other uh, pretty wow. seriously. And it's it's Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Scotty on the bridge going at each other. And Kirk steps out of it at a moment and goes, hang on, what are we doing? We have been trained to think in other terms than this. And yet we're behaving like animals. What is wrong with us? And it's this this breaking point that leads them to realize what's going on on the ship. It's a really great scene. Awesome. Well, I mean, it, I have to keep on reminding myself because I watch it with the naked time. There's the moment where uh, Spock gets his, you know, he's requested uh, quarantine and being examined after they've come back from the colony and everyone's a bit, oh, all right. I'm going, <laughs> have we learned nothing exactly. from Alien? <laughs> have we learned nothing from Alien quarantine? Anyway. Um, so when Spock has finished his examination, uh, there's just the casual racism of McCoy going, do you even call it blood, that green yeah. stuff inside you? And you go, oh, 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 oh. Credit to DeForest Kelly, like the casual racism that's kind of a, a elbow in the ribs that you just talked about is played very distinctly from the something's wrong with McCoy racism of, you know what they are, Jim, they're Klingons. We don't need to stop and yeah. think what is motivating them. You're going, oh, that is that is a different color. Yeah, that is very much a case of, yeah, yeah they are different to us. And that type of stuff is brought back in, in um, uh, Undiscovered Country, obviously, so beautifully. Yeah. Some of those incredible, powerful lines of um, Kirk's inherent prejudice and you know, racism built within there yeah. um, that he had to evolve and move on from. Yeah, still beautiful. One of my favorite parts at the end of Undiscovered Country is um, the daughter and Kirk coming to terms with the loss of their son and uh, father. Beautiful <sighs> moment. Yeah. Seeing characters changed. It's the heart of drama, Rob. That's right. Heart of sci-fi as well. Get a message across, do it in a sci-fi fantastical way, but also move those characters forward emotionally. What a great three episodes to explore. Yeah, I did not expect to uh, be reminiscing about the original series with you today, Rob. So um, yeah, thanks for thanks for pulling that one out. Well, you know, you've been carrying the load of <laughs> next gen and original series so much. You know, I've dabbled a bit if I've watched a little bit of the animated series, I think I've done one or two classic ones. But yes, I thought I'd spend a bit more time uh, at the very heart of the early days of this uh, wonderful franchise. Yeah.